I'm really excited today because today on the podcast, Renee Lottie. Renee is a seasoned veteran of Silicon Valley. She's been through a lot of interesting experiences as a chief information officer uh, in IT services and uh, really done a lot of work over the years there and is now working in the advisory board space. And I think you got to listen to her. She's not just that. But she also uh, is one of the co-chairs of the Americas for the Advisory Board Center. And I think her story is worthy of listening to and her perspectives today. So I'm extremely excited to have Renee on the show with us today. Get ready. Here we go. Renee Lottie, welcome to the Advisory Board Insider Podcast. I'm glad you're here. Thanks, Tom. Ready to go? Aloha. Yeah, it's a... Hi, good morning, good evening. Yes, thank you. So uh, you might have given this question away, but where are you specifically in the planet right now? Where Where do I find you in this conversation? Well, Trivian would tell you I'm on the most isolated land mass in the world, also known as Hawaii, and I'm on the big island of Hawaii upcountry. Got it. So you're in Hawaii. You work from Hawaii. That's your headquarters. That's where you base your operations from. That is thanks to COVID or we know one says thanks to COVID. But as a result of COVID, I was stepped here with no one playing a violin for that statement. And I've been able to basically work remotely ever since. Wonderful. So let's begin with your morning drink of choice, because that's what we do on the podcast. So tell me about your morning drink of choice. What What's your morning drink? Well, I'm holding my wonderful little Hawaiian Starbucks mug, and I'm drinking my local Kona blend, 100% Kona coffee here from the Big Island with a little soy milk. And if I'm really wanting to be adventuresome in the morning, I, I shave a little bit of our local Hawaiian chocolate on top. Wow. And so do you do a drip coffee? Do you do pour over? What's your what's your brew mechanism? What's well, your brew I, method? It, it goes on the night before. It goes off at 4.45 a.m. So that by the time I get up in the morning, the whole house smells like Kona. Oh, oh. and Kona is the Kona is Hawaiian coffee. But is there a specific brand that you're you're connected to? All the local all of them are handpicked little pea berries or the tiniest of the Kona or tiniest of the coffee beans have to be handpicked. And they're usually about $21 a pound, U.S. dollar. So it's not, it's, it's the labor of love. So, wow. and you have the local yeah. farmers that pick it. I'm sure they're all shooting me for me saying it's the same, but they're in the same genre of the wonderful local Hawaiian Kona coffee. And so you can get that it from any number of different farmers and you just get what you get at like the local store or the, like a local farmer's market. Yep. Every Saturday is produce here in farmer's market here in the little town that I live in, which is Waimea or Kemawela, depending on who, who you ask. And there's always tons of coffee there. It's also in the local farmer's markets or in the local grocery stores. But in addition, even Costco has a local Hawaiian corner where you can get local produce. And of course, when you have visitors coming to see you, you take them to what we call the cloud forest, which is upcountry a little bit on the island where the clouds come down. It's perfect growing season for the little coffee beans. And then you get it right from the farm themselves. Got it. 
So in your discussion about your coffee, you mentioned 445. So can you take me back and give me a picture of how you start every day? What's your average start day look like? Well, it depends on who my clients are. These days, it's I split my time between Europe and Asia Pacific. So yes, so 445 is when the coffee goes up, goes off. So about 5.15, 5.30, I'm up. And that's usually saying good afternoon, good evening, good night to my colleagues in Europe. And then kind of, I have, live on a beautiful out in the country, feed the dogs, feed the chickens, feed the cats, and then get back to work really with waking up with the East Coast or actually mid-morning for the East Coasters. And then about midday, there's a lull while I wait for the Philippines, India, all of that other part of the world to come online. And I tend to be the bridge. If there's a company I'm working with or advising with that has both of those locations, I kind of am in the belly button of their world. And so I kind of do the handoffs. Interesting. Well, very cool. So thank you for, for sharing that. So before we talk about what the subject of this podcast is about, I, I always like to dig in and learn a bit more about you. So let's begin, if you're okay with it, in Stevens College, and it appears to be vet school. So <laughs> tell me what's happening in your life. What's the plan? Why are you at vet school? Give me a sense of what's happening in your life. Okay, so that would be 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago some dinosaurs roamed the earth and Renee wanted to grow up to be a vet. Her favorite books as a child were James Harriet, All Creatures Great and Small. And I had two wonderful parents that were academics that just, you could do or be anything. So I was a huge tomboy, grew up in the country, the Midwest countryside and loved animals. And that was kind of the, the gist of it. I also was the STEM girl. So you found me playing more with, technology or being outside, doing the science experiment projects with, with everyone, as opposed to, as my mom's hopes were, ballet, piano, you know, mm. whatever, back in that era. And again, no, no gender bias one way or the other, but that was just, you know, every parent wants them to grow up to do something that they can relate to. My mom and dad grew up on the ranch and the farm, and that was chores before school, but it was not something you aspired to be. And so they always have hopes of doing more stuff than what they did from their kids. And I just grew into that love and passion of the science and the animals. So Stevens College was there in Columbia, Missouri. And it was kind of a pre, pre-vet discipline. It also had a really great liberal arts program. And as I mentioned, both my parents were academics. My dad was a pretty strict dad. So I was the oldest of three and the only girl. So mm. it was also Stevens College, footnote, is a girl's school. So we negotiated that I could have PEB, all my all my writing and my animal husbandry work, because they had a huge uh, commitment to, to that as kind of a precursor to going to vet school. And in exchange, I said, sure, fine, I don't care. It's all girls, that's fine. I'll get over it. And actually, it was actually one of the best things I ever did. I look back on it now. I mean, the reality is I wanted to be a vet for the longest time until a professor pulled me aside and said, so what's the business plan, Renee? Whose vet practice are you going to inherit? Who's, you know, where are you going to, where is your, your business degree? Where's the business classes you have? You have biology and chemistry and pre-vet, all those studies, but where's the other? And it's like, what? <laughs> I love animals, right? And at some point you realized I did not have that practice, the business sense to inherit that piece of going to be a veterinarian. And it was a big kind of blind spot for me. 
So it's really interesting that these people come into our lives and and interject these kind of statements that that in some ways change us. And so what did that what did that interruption, I guess I'll call it, by this professor do to your thinking, where you were going? Uh, where did the path lead from there? Yeah, well, he was a veterinarian, local vet, who also then taught some science classes. And after two years at Stevens, I realized it probably outgrown a lot of the amazing liberal arts, humanities, and kind of that well-balanced foundation that teaches you how to think, not what to think, as I like to say. And I also had a complete meltdown in a biology practicum final where it was the third time. It was 1 a.m. I remember it like it was yesterday. You had your white lab coat on. You're trying to do that final, final. And it just bombed. And I don't, couldn't even tell you why it bombed. And I'm like, oh, my God, what am I doing in this lab? I love people. I love animals. Do I have to make a career at being a veterinarian to achieve all those things? It was one of those ah, mm. irrational aha moments you have as in, in yeah. college. And you, you'd say, okay, it's time to transfer. And at that point, I went to the complete opposite, I think, making up for the 1,300 girls that was my, my university at the time. And I transferred to UCLA and became an economics major. Economics at UCLA. So what, what, was, what was happening there to make that shift? Well, I, was a, I had always wanted to go to California. We grew up in the Midwest, mm. Chicago, froze to death for many years. And many times we had traveled as a family to the West Coast. And it was a very big melting pot of thought. You got the whole spectrum. Mm. You got to kind of yep. play in your own lane. You made your lane and then you got to play in it. And that was always very... Um, inspiring for me. The Midwest, which I love the values I grew up with, but sometimes they became a little cookie cutter. Like, why not this? How about this? And there was a little bit of those values that felt a little bit stifling for me. So when I had the chance to transfer, of course, my dad was a big influencer in that. Where can you transfer? What do you want to do? What, what's mm. missing? One, go to the West Coast or left coast, as he called it. And two, big university campus. It was 50,000 kids. I mean, it was right. bigger than some right. people's cities. Yeah. So you do economics and do you graduate with a degree in economics or does the evolution continue? No, no. Um, I graduated with a degree in economics, but along the way, you know, speckled in a little bit of coaching and counseling. The summers were spent there running their admissions advisory program, both for students and parents. It was great. Every three days you brought in a new group of either parents or kids that were accepted into UCLA top of their field, top, I think it's top 2% at the time. I think it's even gotten more strict now who gets accepted into these, into the university, but it's also a very liberal arts world. So you got to get them mm. not just to come in and be an engineer. They're not coming in, you know, as tiger mom and dads to focus on this thing. It's much broader than that. And so I really enjoyed that component of my education that wasn't showing up and on a degree, but it was just as, as beneficial as that economics degree. And when I graduated, um, it was on to the next thing, which is kind of the way the academics worked at UCLA, which is, again, continuing the liberal arts and a little bit of you don't have a vocation per se, but you have a whole lot of curiosity. What's next? And for me, I actually joined a consulting firm, a legal consulting firm as a business analyst. And that's kind of where okay. I found my love of technology and probably before even it was cool and hip to say data science and design thinking, which were really not even buzz terms back in those days. And you're doing this in Southern California. Yep. Yeah, Southern California. Right. I graduated and then moved to Palos Verdes, California, and had there's a wonderful little boutique firm there on the hill, right 
walking distance from my apartment, my first apartment. And that's where I started my career as a research analyst. Research analyst. And so I have looked through your LinkedIn profile and it's got some pretty big names on there. I saw PeopleSoft, Oracle, Semantic seem to be the first three major companies you work for. So tell me the the movement from the consulting firm over to PeopleSoft, Oracle, Semantic, and maybe a little bit of your journey there. Yeah. So legal consulting, again, I didn't know what that was, but it was basically in the old days of plotting SPSS, SPSS, data and analytics on old dot matrix printers that turned into pie and bar charts. And it was fascinating. That was the fun part. But it also had me doing a little bit of the business and operations of opening new offices. And that that kept me going for a number of years. And ultimately, I realized that it was the STEM part, right? The technology, the math, the, the computers mm. helping fix those old, those old dot matrix printers in the lab, well, back in those times, desktops. But what I didn't have is I didn't really have the formal training. So when I said, I want to go do this next thing, the hipster companies at the time, you know, the crazy, wacky places were like PeopleSoft. You bring your pets to work. It doesn't matter what you wear. You're traveling all over the world. It's human capital management software. And so I applied. And um, I also applied to some of the big, you know, back in that, those days, was the big eight. And right. everyone's question was, well, do you, under, do you know PeopleSoft? Or do you know, do you know the green screens mm. that people are converting from to PeopleSoft? Or do you have a methodology? Or do you? There was all these questions and I realized I needed to go back. So I went back as one of the oldest grad students, I'm sure, at the time. I got my master's in information systems, management information systems at University of Texas, Dallas. And back in those mm. days, again, dinosaurs roaming the earth still, they actually did a lot of the professors from industry, which was very novel in those days. So Texas Instruments executives and business people and technologists would come and teach and lecture. It's you got a very commonsensical way of versus the textbooks that were outdated, even in those days. The textbook was outdated by the time you're reading it in class. The baud rate of the fax machine right. you were reading in this book was, you know, half as fast <laughs> as what you know is out there. I know that, right, right. that dates me a whole lot. But anyway, yes, you yeah. And from once I graduated, so then guess what? I had my background, I had the discipline, I had the language, I had the frameworks, and I joined PeopleSoft. Okay. And so in into PeopleSoft you go and what do you what are you doing? Now you've got you've got methodology, you've got you've got a platform to stand on that that you now you've already you've already got all of these other basics, but now you've added to it. And so at PeopleSoft, what do you learn? What do you experience that then takes you to Oracle, that takes you to Semantic? Give me a little bit of that history in a nutshell. Sure. So PeopleSoft, you, you, it was the fr feeding frenzy of they'd hand you spreadsheets so you got to pick what job you wanted. It was just such a hot, hot commodity. It was just spreadsheets being rotated around. And I stayed in Texas at the time, Dallas, but I traveled everywhere. So for me, I learned the implementation of ERP solutions, whether it be HR and finance, I did specifically HR benefits and benefits administration. I was kind of the human capital management consultant, but I traveled everywhere. You know, bags was always packed. It was a blast, but you learned how to, as I'd like to say, consultants help you fill your database in your brain of, of fact patterns that if you were working in a corporate environment, it would take you years to accomplish what you do as a consultant traveling and doing the same 
business problems, say HR payroll benefits, but in different industries and different parts of the world. So I did that for almost, well, until 2004. And at that point, very sad is the hostile takeover or whatever you want to call it of the PeopleSoft Oracle struggle began, or I think ended at that point. I think we all have a, a still a t-shirt with the morning of the death of PeopleSoft and the hostile takeover of Oracle. And no offense to my Oracle colleagues and friends, because I still have them, but it was the end of a culture. And so I became yep. Oracle employee by, by trans acquisition. By acquisition. Yeah. By acquisition. And that's putting it nicely. And then I stayed there for a while, but it was California. You have to drive across a huge ba bridge to get from where I lived to Oracle's corporate headquarters. There was no work from home construct at that point. So it became pretty tiresome. You know, I think probably three, four hours on a, on in a car certain days when there's an accident. Mm. And at some point I said, you know, let's see what else is out there. I love tech, but how about something closer to home? And I went to Symantec. And again, through networking, still technology, cybersecurity in its early days. And that was right after Symantec and Veritas had pulled together. So small, small, medium business, consumers, me, mega enterprise Veritas. And so it was a very curious place to go mm. to technology and IT. But you did that for, as best I can tell, almost six years where you ultimately became CIO or chief information officer at that company. So that that seems to me a fairly significant rise. And I mean, I, I you know, I didn't pull off the dates exactly, but to me, that's when that's when Silicon Valley is starting to really do some cool stuff. It was. It was it was the dot com and then the dot bomb. So we rode that yeah. both. And I think probably the part that I really got my sunk my teeth in, I ended up being really second in charge in, in IT for a while. So chief of staff or the underling to the CIO, who I knew really well, a great colleague and friend, and learned how to do a lot of the operational day-to-day -day work. The challenge with the CIO or a CISO in a company that's in tech, you have two phases. You have the marketing hat you put on to go help sell because we're a cybersecurity company. Of course, we have resilient cybersecurity disciplines, practices, and software. And let us tell you about that. So you tend to have the C-suite be as much on the road, on the road doing the roadshow part as you do having them stay at home and do the operational part. Unique for being in, in, a t in the tech sector. So I got to have a little bit more freedom or responsibility than probably the normal chief of staff. So I grew into that role quite quickly because I had a great mentor and I also had, you know, again, just some, a little bit of right. luck and, and uh, support. So I was there for a while. And then at some point you got to spread your wings. And yes. so as the, and Silicon Valley is a bubble. It's a great bubble. Sometimes it's dysfunctional bubble, depending on who you talk to, but at some point, as a CIO, and I would say chief innovation officer as much as information officer, mm. I helped start doing transitions and transformation there. Big transformation during my time there was to bring Veritas meets Symantec. So consumers who install Norton on their, in their CD, on their, with their CD-ROM for the laptop, right. enterprise storage, you gotta, you gotta not run two different businesses. How do you synthesize that in a way there's common processes. And in some cases, some processes have to be rewritten, some are obsolete. So you kind of learned a little bit about that trans transformational work as well. And so, mm. as I said, it's time to go do this somewhere else and not be in Silicon Valley because mm. a lot of the time is 
can I do this outside of the tech sector? Because everyone speaks geek in Silicon Valley. Everyone speaks geek in the tech sector. But how about being a good storyteller when you go, say, to consumer goods or go to uh, retail or go to medical? You got to translate yeah. a lot of these really abstract or complicated constructs to help them be successful in whatever they're doing for their business. But you got to you got to boil it down and you got to go over that proverbial wall to speak right. language. So I joined SC Johnson as their first. Oh. As their first CIO, they were looking to do transformation. They at the time had Procter and Gamble eating their lunch in data and analytics. Back in those days, if you Google all the way back there, whoever's listening to this podcast, you'll see they had these massive rooms, partnership with HP. They knew about their customers. It was all data-driven and it was amazing. And all of a sudden, everyone below, you know, competing in that marketplace, whether it be Clorox or SC Johnson or whoever said, wait, 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 we need that. Well, wait, first we need a head of an IT department. Wait, then we need cybersecurity. Wait, so all of these prerequisites. So SC Johnson really had their first aha to say we need a chief information officer. We also mm. want analytics discipline and we want cybersecurity. So those were like the three parts of the position as I was approached to consider it. And oh, by the way, you got to move back to Racine, Wisconsin. Now, luckily, I grew up in the Midwest, so I knew where Racine, Racine, Racine was. Ended up right. moving there, moving to Milwaukee, which is very close by. They have no traffic, so it was pretty easy to get there. And that was that was kind of the first step in what I would say is my transformation junkie phase of doing work. Technology. So and how did yes. how did that how did the needing to translate language now into a non-geek world? How did that all did that work? Did you feel like you you were able to after a while, or did that take you a while to to deconstruct this old language that you had coming out of Silicon Valley? Well, I think I was restless to always sit in Silicon Valley. I'm a curious storyteller, as you can tell, a little long-winded sometimes. So for me, it was not hard, but you had to get steeped in context. Well, let's go mm. back west. I grew up there many years ago, but let's understand what the culture of a private CPG company that's punching above their weight Right. Looks like, thinks like. And so I literally the probably had magic markers, the kind that smell really good when you sniff them, right? The kids magic markers and, and, and doodle paper in my backpack or my briefcase at all times to try and do visual stories of, well, this is what attached to detached storage is. This is why you want detached storage because you all are creating all this data. Let's show you what that means if you so you, I mean, that's, those were my tools as much as it was putting together an RFP to potentially look at a vendor to help me. Right. So let me, you had to get the buy-in from the business first. Mm, yeah. I enjoyed that part. Actually, that was probably the funnest part. The geek speak stuff is necessary. You got to come up and know how to build the data center and crimp cables and be an MCSE and all of that. So you can call BS on people, you know, if they're full right. of it. But that's not really where my passion lies. 
So I really right. enjoyed that part. So SC Johnson, you take on this role, you the initial role there, you grow it, you develop there. And where do you get to the place that you go, mm, okay, I've got my lesson here. What's the next lesson? That seems to be your style. It's like yeah. you get, I don't know if you get bored or you just want a bigger challenge. I don't get bored, but I grew up, if you remember early in my story was I left the Midwest because it was very much cookie cutter. And I love right. Midwest and all the, you move into a neighborhood and someone brings you a casserole to your front door and right. say, welcome. That's awesome. Right. It was freezing cold. The years I was there, it was supposed to be a five-year plan in my head. The polar vortex hit year three, which is minus 65 degree wind chill factor. <laughs> Children were not allowed to stand outside and wait for their bus, nothing. And it was just so bitter cold. And I had forgotten as a child, you stay inside a lot of the time. And mm. at that point, I already bought a place in Hawaii. So I love the outdoors. I love paddle, stand-up paddleboarding. The sun was my just my outs outdoors mm -hmm. and the sun was just something that I needed to stay upbeat and be happy. And there's a lot of science behind that. And all of a sudden you really were depressed in the middle of the winters there. And you're told, don't wear sunscreen, take more vitamin D, get yourself through this stuff. And after about the year three, I'm like, I can't, it's fun wow. work, but work is not your whole world. Right. And I actually built a good succession plan. So that was part of the, always part of the DNA. So I had somebody to hand the keys to. And about that time, I started looking back on the West Coast and found mm. Hitachi, which was at the time going through, again, a transformation from Hitachi Data Systems, which is, a, as we all know, they sold storage and still do under a new moniker. But HCS was the resilient Every CIO had it in their data center for their high-end systems, built in Japan, engineered, just rock solid. So HDS, as we watched the declining market or commoditization of storage, needed to do a smart pivot themselves, reinvent themselves. Mm. And the IT department at the time had, I think, four to five generations of IT people. It was a very Japanese mindset of you come, you work one place for your entire life. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as you continue to reinvent them yourself. And it didn't seem like that was happening. So they were looking for an outsider to come in and help revalidate the IT department and, and kind of do a smart pivot on it to prep it for what was going to be a bigger rebranding of the whole company. And I've never been through one of those. So I thought that would be fun. Wow. So, so Hitachi Data Systems, HCS, is now known as Hitachi Ventara. And the first three years was getting your own house in order. Um, getting everybody, not just working in Silicon Valley from the dot bomb era where it was cheap to hire people, data scientists, whoever, all in your neighborhood, you had to go to, you know, a managed services or an employee base leveraging the global model. And I'm a big design thinker, diversity of thought helps solve the problems best, right? That's, that's, that's in my DNA. It runs through my blood. And so we really spent the first three years really finding the diversity of a global follow the sun model for an IT department who was going to get ready for this ridiculous journey of, you know, we're going to transform the entire company and speak a new language. And we're going to be outcomes-based and we're selling solutions and services, not just hardware and IT. You got to know how to speak that language first. So it's three years of that. And then about two and a half years, um, once we did the, well, going through the transformation that really went to Japan. We went all the way to Japan with this and explained mm. what we were doing. We had to create a transformational blueprint since Hitachi Limited, which was what Hitachi Vantara belonged to, 
at the time was one of 900 subsidiaries. Wow. About a $100 billion entity in Japan. And, you know, we were all a Japan subsidiary. So in the U.S., you probably didn't know about them. But, you know, they, they traded on the Nikkei in Japan. And that was the interesting part for me. No longer Silicon Valley. While I didn't move back to San Jose, Santa Clara, the culture, the context was Japanese. I'm like, okay, let's go do this. We figured out about CPG or a non-tech industry. Let's go figure out global. Because country, country culture trumps whatever they say. Culture, you know, eats uh, strategy for lunch, as Cotter would say. Yeah. And so let's go learn about that because there's other ways to solve business problems besides the way Silicon Valley or corporate America does. And so that was my journey. Personally, it was amazing. I learned a lot of patience and tradition. And we uh, set uh, Hitachi Ventar up for success with a shared services model that the other subsidiaries could consume if they didn't have the scale or breadth or depth of what HDS had as a subsidiary for running an IT department from scratch. Mm, wow, what a journey. So you, you do that whole thing and then you jump from industry into advisory, into consulting, into being a mentor. And I notice in your, your profile that, I mean, all of a sudden you go from that world of industry deeply embedded in leading change, leading major transformation. And, and now you're in this different world where you're doing your own thing. So what drove that transition now? What, what caused you to go from industry into advisor? Give me that well, sense. Well, there's two, there's two, two things. One was an internal, again, aha moment of Hitachi had a great philosophy. When you spoke about what you did and why you do it, at that time, it was a double bottom line. Now they say triple, but at the time, it's double bottom line. So it's not just important to do this for the company that you work for and make a good profit for the shareholders, but you have to, it has to be beneficial to the rest of the world as well. And so the more I spoke and I did a lot of keynotes, I was asked to be, we, we started our, our ERG, formalized a lot more of our uh, ERG groups. And I was asked to be the ERG executive for the people of color. And then I also was asked to be, to lead the women of Hitachi event. Yeah, for the US, for the Americas. You can kind of see the pull in the pay it forward, do yeah. more. And it was in me, but when you start to say it, I'm like, yeah, that's the way it should be. Oh. Is that not how it really works? So it was kind of this aha moment for me. I grew up as a kid with my parents didn't care if I wore a skirt or pants or whatever I wanted to be, auto mechanic one day, pianist the next, whatever. It didn't matter. And it would never occur to me that I couldn't do that. But in my years with Hitachi, it did occur to me that not everybody has that gift, that privilege. Mm. Up with yeah. that. And so part of me just said, okay, how do you start to pay it forward? And that was the aha internally. About that time, it's Rounding out 2019, starting 2020, this evil thing called COVID started to pop up. And yeah. I happened to be in Hawaii, trying not to move to Tokyo, but closer to Tokyo, since a lot more of my work was stationed there. And then it was time to make a call. And it's one of those, I had a succession plan. I had an amazing successor that he was ready to take. He was more than ready. And five and a half years, you know what? A CIO stays too long in one place, you know. Yeah, grass grows under, weeds grow around your feet, and you get a, you get. Okay. People ask you, why did you stay so long? Because technology okay. is always evolving, and the revolving front door is how you benefit from that. So yep. he took over, and graciously, I continued to be able to do some work and 
good news is I got to do it from here and do a lot more of the pay it forward. So I had about six or nine months where I'm like, you know what? I say I'm going to do these things. And so you see a lot of my, um, my CV has a lot of the foundational work or the nonprofit work during that time, both here right. on the Hawaiian Islands, as well as over in Europe. And I just kind of paid it forward while I sorted out what is next. And right. then I ran into the wonderful thing called Advisory Board Center. As I was looking at really fact patterns between coaching individual young women in STEM and STEAM to being an advisor for a startup after school STEM program in London, where something was abolished because of COVID, there was not enough momentum, but these kids are now, they have nothing to do after school. It's a single parent, you know, single parent situation to some work I was doing in, in other parts of Asia Pacific. Random stuff, but there was still a common thing. One, I didn't have decision rights. I was advising. I was yep. a storyteller. My words were, have you thought about? What do you think about? What do you want to do? What's your strategy? There was common fact patterns of what was coming out of my mouth and how I said it. I said, you know, there has to be a framework for this. Other, normally, you'd go to your, you know, your, PA, you know, your PMP or your whatever framework methodologies did corporate America, but those don't work because you owned it. You were the accountable person driving the project, right. driving the budget. This was different. And I just, again, it's one of those, I'm on Zoom or I'm on my computer every single day, as everyone else was during COVID. And I found through an article, I think it was, it's like advisory board center. It's decision rights stay with the, with the entity. You are an advisor. You're passionate. You're committed. You want to see them be successful, however. And join us. And you have this framework that we give you that supports that. It has flexibility, but it has enough girth and belts and suspenders to be able to use and reuse it. So that's, yeah. that connects me. Okay. So you've got this, you've got this connection. You've got this looking out at steam and STEM and potential coaching and some, some for-profit and not-for-profit advisory opportunities. Had you employed or used or sponsored advisory boards in this history through Hitachi Vantara, SC Johnson? Were you engaging advisory boards at that point or or more formal advisory structures? I think I would fell into the the bucket of, and again, advisory boards have different, you know, it can be project and pop-up based. Yeah. It can be coaching and mentoring, a little more informal. So what I had been doing for years is doing the informal the informal part. So I still have young women and colleagues that we do coaching and advisory work on. And it was a framework, but let's not be so loosey-goosey. When you have free time, call me. That's not going to work. So you kind of look for the same thing. So my growth into the advisory world became that portfolio part of your career. So I have a lot of colleagues or entities, you know, relationships that want that from me. And a lot of it in the U.S., again, U.S. is a, a, a it's a big it's a big animal, right? How do you, you know, how do you tackle that right. big elephant one bite at a time? And for me, it was through the nonprofit part and from the mm. individual contributor part. Right. Okay. So as you're, as you're emerging in this space and as you're growing in this, and you've already got all of these existing structures that you're in your, in terms of ad, advice, coach, those kind of things. What are you personally seeing in the marketplace based on your unique history and perspective that is amplifying the need for advisory boards? What are you seeing from that perspective? 
Well, so one of the things I think we said it early. So, I mean, look at, you know, look at the current dilemmas, shall I say, of the banking industries we have here with Silicon Valley Bank, Republic, Signature. And if you read, again, there's no, best that I can say, I don't think there's an answer yet. But the question is, what happened? Like, where was the various perspectives, right? The diversity of thought that said, have an oh crap moment before oh crap moment hit around the world, right? And what I see that was missing or potentially may be missing, we'll see in the coming days, is what you've kind of seen in a few companies through COVID, whether it be Adobe or you have Salesforce, you have Aon. They said, oh my God, we're in COVID. How do we grow now? Or how do we smart pivot? And it's not pause, take a time out. Let's go find a vet. Let's go do a RFP for the best consulting firm on the planet. They assembled what we now know as an advisory board. It's right. independence. And I would say that the, the probably, you know, in their case, they probably corporatized it. But really, the piece that was the aha, and there's great research case studies on all of those out there, is that they had an independent thinking entity. Potentially, probably at first it was a board, you know, a board member. But they grew from that to say, okay, we don't know everything. And for me, I've always said, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. And if you're right. small or big company and you're the C-suite executives, you got to check the ego and say, I don't know everything. I got here because I surrounded myself with smarter people than me. This is kind of, I think, where the advisory board really shows up in a way that has framework to the extent, you know, it has to be, you know, it has to be a cool framework. You can't show up with a, yep. you know, this is how project. But I would say the most important characteristic is emotional independence. And that's what mm. you show up for in being an advisory board chair or subject matter expert. I kind of wear both hats. So when I joined the advisory board program, and I went through the certification to learn about both the frameworks and then also be a chair. And I was, I think, the first or second outside of Asia Pacific. It's headquartered in Brisbane, Australia, but it's really quartered the market in Asia Pac. But coming to the U.S., I think I was number two or number three. You had to be a chair and you had to be, you know, the, the technical SME expertise. So I learned both at the same time, which I thought was really invaluable. But it resonated with two things. One. You don't have the decision rights. You're not a yep. fiduciary. You're not a governance board who sits up there that's, you know, has risk. And, and we're seeing in the marketplace these days, not only risk, but they're put, being put in really tough situations from a, from a legal perspective of not, were they watching the cookie jar? Were they doing what they should have been doing as a fiduciary? That's not what advisory boards are. As a matter of fact, advisory boards can actually help the governance board. They help the C-suite. Right. Independent, have you thought about? And yes. aren't shy about asking the curious, tough questions, which right. is me. I'm the curious question. Question: Have you thought about why do you do this? What's the strategy? You don't have one. You want me to do it? Ooh. Yeah. Really? <laughs> so that tends to be where it, I just fell into that niche, and I really like it. Yeah. So you you talked a lot about emotional independence. How do you? How do you, as a advisor, as a chair of advisory boards, how do you grow that skill? <laughs> is that just inherent in you or is there a skill that you're working on in order to make sure that that is always a stable part of what you do? You know, I think it's, it's an internal 
integrity ethics things with yourself because in the mm. US again I've I've now been with advisory board center programs and I'm now the co America's community chair so I've seen how it operates globally I think the challenge here in the US is it's hard not to say oh let me advise you and I got this buddy my uncle has his consulting firm and you have to kind of stay in your lane to do that work back to if you have intellectual independence, you know, you want to see this company be successful. Right. You, you want them to stand on their own two feet. They, again, a lot more, I'm doing a lot more with the startup and the, the SMB market these days. And you want to see them grow and be successful. And you're emotionally committed to them. You're emotionally and independently committed to them. And I think that becomes kind of who you are. And there've been times like, well, Renee, can you tell me a consulting firm or could you come be this? Well, I said, if, if I did that, I'd have to step out of this lane and go to that lane. Mm. And most of the time, I don't, I don't like to do that on the same account. I can do the consulting work and I like doing that from time to time, but they have to kind of be back to that portfolio career. You have to have it all together, but you got to keep your lanes pretty clean in my clean, opinion. Clean, right. And so part of what you're saying there is, is understanding how to, how to manage your own boundaries. Like it's, it's being really clear on what your own boundaries are. They are. Yeah. 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 That's good. Well, um, you move into so, your, life, your own mouth, what comes out of your mouth, right? You're trying to put, you know, two ears, one mouth. When you speak it, are you li listen to yourself and say, are you telling or are you advising? Are you being right. curious or are you dictating? Because ultimately, it's not your decision and gets your ego back in check. The flip side is you want to make sure that they don't have an optimistic optimistic bias, which there's lots of research for that. Company C-suite executives, we don't need this. We're highly optimistic. We have an op optimistic bias towards we'll figure this out. Right. And your job is to help course correct that for them, not for you. Right. Yes. And yet that comes from both an understanding of your present role, but also the deep knowledge you bring from your history. I, I'm guessing that in a lot of the situations you show up in, even though they're dramatically different kinds of business, you bring all of that experience from SC Johnson, Hitachi, Vantara, all the way back through even the early consulting firm that you worked in. Yep. So the consulting is great because as I said, it fills your database of your brain. Now your brain and artificial intelligence intelligence and generative AI and all the rest of it with that, it gives you a reminder there's multiple ways to solve the same problem. And, you know, in some cases, IT, sometimes you get in these Coke versus Pepsi wars of which ERP system is the best. Mm. I don't, I really never cared. I cared about what company cared about, but I don't care. They all get to the same place. Right. Within reason, I'm sure I'm going to get a whole bunch of nasty emails from that, but in general, <laughs> All they do, and that kind of becomes my platform, all they do is store data. The lifeblood of all of these companies is what's the data. Back to my right. original out of university, what's the data telling us? What can we mine mm. this renewable resource? And so that's what you're trying to help them do. So yes, the technology part brings a whole lot of that to the table. My years of experience is why you are in, your advisors come and be invited to the party. You're either a SME, or you have a good governance as a chair to know how to run that flexible but pragmatic framework to hold everyone to account as an advisor. And so right. the coaching and mentoring component, you know, those, those non-sharp elbow skills, right? 
they used to call them soft skills, which I hate. It's, I would say they're leadership skills mm -hmm. to have that conversation without you being the smartest person in the room or you're not standing in the limelight. That's in my world. That's not really what gets me excited. It's like watching those other other opportunities for others to, to, to prosper. So what else have you seen in terms of what's working right now? Best practice. I know you talked about frameworks and the flexibility of that, but are, are there any other things that you've experienced directly that are indicators of what works versus what doesn't work? Is there best practice versus practice that, that is inherently flawed? You know, it's hard to say best practice because it's such, it's so context specific, but what I would yeah. say when you know, the, the executives are saying we're missing something. And again, the COVID situation was a great one. Like, wait, how do we grow now? Really? Oh my God. It's like night and day. And I'll tell a great CIO stories, a CIO story from an, from a academic institution. And he's, he's like, well, no one will say thank you to COVID during COVID. If I brought a million dollar project, which is typically what CIOs tend to have is their, the size of their investments in the portfolio. He goes, Never in a time except during COVID could I bring a million dollar project and say, I will get it done in 30 days or less. And it flies through the approval process. So all of a sudden, what's impossible becomes possible. And I think what's happened as a result of that is people are like, yeah, but what made that that way? Well, well, we know we were missing something and we couldn't wait to do it the fast, the slow way. Supply mm. chain, da, 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 RFP pick the best bid, eight months later, maybe we implement it. We got to go quick. And I think with that is kind of the, the backdrop. We've all learned that, wait, something's missing. How do we go grab it fast and react is kind of how the advisory board framework is set up. We know we're right. missing something. Well, we know other companies have solved this, but who do we have around the table that knows that? Or maybe could bring a diverse perspective or poke the bear a little bit to make us think differently. I think that's what's the best practice of this is like, aha, we know something's missing. And then the second question really early on is you say, is it missing for continuum or for a finite amount of time? And that right. kind of sets up, is it a project-based advisory board member or SME, or are we really needing another voice of reason or sounding board that isn't our governance board with fiduciary responsibility? It isn't the C-suite that we've all grown together for the last 25 years or whatever. That becomes, I think, probably best practice. Beyond that, it kind of comes back to what I said about having a blank sheet of paper as your framework is no good because you wander the, right. yeah, you wander the desert aimlessly a little bit, but you need flexibility in what the frameworks are. And that's where kind of the advisory board center really resonated for me with some of the basics, the foundation ABCs. I use it even outside of advisory board work just as a kind of a checkpoint on some very simple templates and very simple, are you doing this? Have you thought about this? When's the last time you did this? Kind of those little reminder things like virtual yellow stickies. Right. No, that's so good. So let's let's imagine that there is a, a young woman who started a SaaS business of some kind or another, and she's grown it. And, and all of a sudden, she she's got this business into sort of a hyper loop. And it's flying and she's looking for some, some kind of structure around her. What advice would you give her on initial steps in setting up a advisory board, considering it, how, how might she go about that? 
Well, I think step one is would be to ask those questions. So what's your business? What's your strategy? What's Where are the pieces that made you want to do this? What's your story and how are you invested in it? Because all of those questions need to, they may not be perfect answers, but they need to have been written, documented, and somewhat um, institutionalized, rightly or wrongly, and then coming back to that saying, because of what I've written down or what I what I have as my framework, I know something's not working, so I need help making the strategy grow, or maybe why is it not working? Why is this business mm. stalled? Or why? Right. If you don't have that as your starting point, and sometimes you don't, you you have those conversations informally as a as a mentor or a coach, like, well, I don't know. What do you think my strategy should be? Then that becomes that aha moment to say. You got to go back. That's a, have a conversation in the mirror with yourself. What, what got you into doing this job? And I do a lot mm. of coding, of coding, you know, coding competitions or science technology competitions here on the islands. And one of the first things I say is when you're trying to do your pitch, you know, you do all this research for six, nine months as a key bunch of kids, lab, amazing brilliance. Um, in this case, it was for um, recycling here on the island. But you got five minutes to impress the judges. Why? Did you pick this thing? Tell your story. And it's the super hard part because it's kind of no one else can do it. And the kids do a great job of it. But it's the same question I'd ask that young woman. Like, how did you get involved in this? Why why is this like fire in your belly? And then I probably the other thing I would do is we have some great research out on the advisory board center for women startups, especially for women. There's some personas or patterns that happen that there's a couple of good articles out there that I'd suggest them also read to say, hey, suggest that she read. Hey, take a read of this. There's others that have gone before you. Doesn't matter where in the world, but they're doing the same kind of soul searching. Take a read of this as well. And this is, again, suggestion, not homework yep. assignment, but see right. what happens. Do they go actually read the article or do they just come back and say, no, 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 I just need a quick fix. Right. Which is a which is a really important indicator in terms of where they go from there. That's right. That's right. And then yeah. the good news is then there's a starter pack and you can sit around, you can help them revalidate the charter, you know, revalidate their words and and, and engage with them. But it kind of helps set the tone and that that, you know, there's a line there that you don't cross as an advisory board member. And so this is a good right. exercise to help them understand why you might push back in certain ways. If you then say, okay, this sounds like an advisory board opportunity, and I'd be delighted to be invested with you to help you be successful. Right, right. Wonderful. So any, any final thoughts on, on what you've learned over your history through the last number of years related to advisory boards in terms of, of insights, lessons learned already in the, in the process? Is there anything else that you miss saying that you feel like would be helpful? You know, I'm looking at my notes because it was kind of like, oh, what, what else, what else, what else, what else? I think it's not so much missing it is to not confuse it because, I, you know, I, and I think in the U.S. We, we struggle a little bit with, oh, yeah, board, advisory board, like a governance board. No, no, no. There's corporatized yeah. advisory boards. But again, are you telling or are you advising? Do you have fiduciary mm. responsibilities or not? And I think... Increasingly now, I would say the trend is, would be how I'd leave this, more than ever, we are in a world of more exposure to the unknown unknowns, right? 
the no, sorry, the known unknown. So we know right. there's something coming. We don't know what it is. Just like we're telling our kids, go to university for a job that hasn't been invented yet. Right. Right. But how do you how do you deal with that? Well, I think advisory boards are now finding their sweet spot, and they have around the globe a lot more. I think than here in the U.S. I think there's some great business cases for it, Aon and and Salesforce. But you don't have to be that big or Adobe. To, to do that type of work. Financial Times, I think, had a great article on the, the time is now for advisory board work because of the known unknowns. You have to do it quickly, right? And I think COVID taught us all that we can smart pivot quickly under right. certain, you know, diamonds are created through pressure, right? You, you create that, you do that, although not quickly, but you're, you, we need to figure out how to do that. And I think advisory boards are where that kind of starts to show up would yeah. be my final thoughts on that. Wonderful. Stay tuned. Well, thank you. <laughs> Stay tuned. Well, let me, uh, as, as we complete and conclude, thank you for all your amazing insight today and your perspective and your story. I think your story is is testament to a process that unfolds that, that then can be brought to so many other people and companies. But as we conclude, I, I kind of like to ask some more fun personal questions just for the sheer joy of it. So, and specifically because you're a, you're formerly a CIO and IT person, a STEM person. I love these questions even more. So first question, PC or Mac? I am a Mac. I was a, a Wintel for many, many, many years. And I think the, you know, again, steam turns to STEM turns to steam at some point in my world and in a lot of people's worlds, especially young girls, the A is arts. So that's that creative component that's missing. And so when I kind of did a little bit of a pivot on that, I also, you know, old dog, new tricks, taught myself how to be a Mac user and really enjoy it. Good. Current book on your night table. What's the current book that you're oh, reading? Gosh. If you're reading one. No, I, I you know, I, I listen to I listen to Audible. I'm a terrible reader reader because I'm on reading all day. So I'm actually rereading a great book. It's a historical fiction. It's called Molokai. And it's back to the era of, you know, an era pre-tech. It's back when Father Damien and the whole outbreak of what's, hand, you know, Hansen's disease is what's called now. But, uh, but it's, it's about, uh, it's, it's in a time where no electricity, no whatever. And you have the outbreak of Hansen's disease on on Oahu and everywhere else, it was a quote, a plague. And people were literally relegated to this island of Molokai and, and how they grew and how they affirmed their, who they are. And it's from a perspective of a young woman, Rachel, who was, I think, 12, leprosy. There you go, leprosy. When she, mm. you know, everyone suspected everyone has leprosy, dump them in the water and make them go to Molokai. So it was good. It's a good counterbalance, lots of visualization, a lot of histor history that's correct with fictional characters. So. Lovely. What's your favorite web or phone app that gives you the best ROI? Time Buddy. Time Buddy. <laughs> and, and for what reason? What's that do for you? Oh, so I am here in Hawaii and I don't, you know, Hawaii doesn't do daylight savings time. So in and of itself, you got to remember Ireland, UK, Australia, yeah. da, 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 da. In India, you're up 12 and a half hours, depending on what country, what city you're in, you know, you're half right. an hour. So that's one of those, I can line them all up and say, I need a meeting here. Oh, look, okay, I got it. And then I take a snapshot of it and send it to my colleagues and say, here you go. Here's the window where all can meet. And it's the most productive app ever. That's, 
of work. Love it. And that's on your phone or on your computer? Or my phone. Super phone. easy. It's a mobile app. On my... Delightful. Oh, go ahead. No, delightful. I just... It, that's that's one that I, I am not aware of. I use one called Time Meeting Planner, I think it is. And it you just put in the different cities and it gives you the, the different options available to you. But that, that sounds really cool because I don't have that on my phone. Yeah, it works. And it, and, and for should I be drinking a beer or should I be having the clappy when I call my friends? So there's get yeah, through, <laughs> you know, I did that through COVID as well. I was trying to stay connected with everybody. So it worked socially as well as for work. So what was the first question you asked chat GPT? Well, since I am now more of a CDAO, I'm a CIO, reformed CIO and now more of a CDAO, so Chief Data and Analytics Officer. That's kind of where I play in the space. So I wanted to understand her limits because she always is smart. She's She gets not as smart after 2021. So I right. asked her to do you know some really crazy stuff and see what her response was. And one of them was, I'm running for the board of an HOA meeting or HOA in my, in my neighborhood. What might be a good... Stump speech that's five minutes long. And, Beautiful. And they knew I was in Hawaii. I mean, you had to just see how they all picked up. And then the other one is I rephrased the question a couple times to see how it how it changed. How it, it did that. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. That's great. And final question. For that really quick, chat TPT used correctly with data ethics applied makes humans be more human. It is not going to mm. take over our brains and it's yes. not going to do our work for us. Yeah. Well, and I think your perspective on that is is particularly interesting. So I think that's a helpful perspective. So the final question, and, and you may have alluded to this already, but what is something outside of your professional life that you're irrationally passionate about? Cooking. Cooking or really? watching, yeah, Food Network. Yeah, I, I literally have my Food Network app on my phone. I'll watch it on the weekends and download a recipe, whether it's, Jeffrey Zarkarian or Guy Fieri or whoever, Rachel Ray, while I'm watching, I'm like, I'm doing that one. So I have a very, very robust network of recipes on my phone that then become a lot of what I do through, especially through COVID, to cut. And our neighborhood is a bunch of farmers. So we pretended as if we had to all work off grid one day a week. And we'd say, okay, what do you got? What do you got? Oh, you got basil? I can do pesto. You got this? So for me, it, it is a mindful moment to be in the kitchen and being creative with recipes and, and cooking of all of all types, Japanese, German, you name it, I cook it. Renee, this has been an absolute delight. Thank you for your perspective. Thank you for sharing it all. And it's been a real pleasure to have you on the show. Hey, so Tom, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Super easy. Enjoy your day. Aloha. Aloha. <laughs>